if you've been around North Place for any length of time, you've heard us talk about the Daily 20, okay? Now, if you're a first-time guest today or you haven't heard of that concept before, uh, what are we talking about when we refer to the Daily 20? The Daily 20 is a discipline that we commit to here at North Place as followers of Jesus Christ. When we say 20, we refer to 20 minutes a day, spending 20 minutes at a minimum, 20 minutes each day with our God. It's important. Uh, So the way that we do that is we say we're going to spend five minutes a day in worship, just like we did. We're going to, a moment ago, we're going to spend five minutes a day in worship, five minutes a day reading our Bible, five minutes a day in prayer, and five minutes every day listening. 5, 10, 15, 20, woo, our maths are good. The daily 20. Why do we do this? What, what is the purpose of us having a daily 20? Something that, that, we, that it's very, very important that we point out and that we understand is that we're not doing this to earn our salvation. We talked about it this morning. We celebrated it with communion. Our salvation is basically taken care of for us, not basically, it is when Jesus Christ died on the cross and he resurrected three days later. The Bible tells us that Jesus paid for our sins. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, we are made right with God. We don't have to question if we're made right with God. When we put our faith and our belief in Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins and he resurrected three days later, and we tell him, God, I give you my life, I believe, then the Bible tells us that we are saved. We are made right with God. As followers of Jesus, we don't believe that we have to pray a certain way to be made right with God. We don't have to offer sacrifices here or there to be made right with God. We don't have to read our Bible or give enough money to the apostle or the church in order to be made right with God. Amen? But it is because of what Jesus has done for us when he died on the cross for our sins and he resurrected three days later that we are saved. Our faith grants us eternal life. When we die in this life, we can open our eyes and we will be in heaven with God, our creator, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins when we leave this earth. So why do we have a daily 20? What is the purpose of all of these things? Well, we commit to the daily 20 to allow God to shape us into the image of Christ for the sake of other people. I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect. (laughs) My children and my lovely wife will remind me of that every once in a while, right? It's okay. We're not perfect. We haven't arrived. We don't selflessly love other people and put them above ourselves every day. It's not in our human nature. And so when we commit to a daily 20, what we're saying is, God, I commit for you to transform my life so that my life looks less like Aaron and more like Jesus Christ for the sake of other people, for the sake of others. So this morning, we're gonna be talking about this daily 20 and we have the privilege of learning about the daily 20, three of the different aspects of it uh, from a group of our interns that are with us this morning. So this morning, you're gonna get the privilege to hear from our second year interns. Uh, They all started uh, back with us in January of last year, right? January of last, is that? Yes, okay. So they're, time, man, woo, what is time? Um, They all started with us January of last year. And what's amazing is this time next year, they will be finished with their bachelor's degree in Bible and theology. Can we give it up for their hard work? So each of them are going to take one of these aspects of the Daily 20, and they're going to preach a sermon for us this morning. So if you're wondering, are they qualified to be able to do this, I promise you that they are. See, not only do each of them possess the knowledge necessary to be able to teach us these aspects this morning, 
but personally, I know that each of them practice what they're going to preach to you in their daily lives. None of them started this with the desire to stand on a stage and hold a microphone. They exemplify the heart of servant leadership better than anyone I have ever had the privilege to work with in my life. All of them were willing to hold a broom and a mop before a microphone. Come on, somebody. I have a philosophy in ministry. If you can't hold a toilet brush, you can't hold a mic. All of them exemplify the heart of the house, all the way from Pastor Randy and Desra and our pastoral team, all the way to all of the staff, all of our leaders and volunteers that we are servant leaders, and they live this out personally. So here's how this is going to work today. They each get seven minutes to preach a sermon. Woo, that's hard. We're going to call it the sermons in sevens. Ooh, I like that. Sermons in sevens. Underneath my chair right here, my lovely assistant will hold up the air horn. There is a beautiful air horn. If they go over seven minutes, the air horn will resound. Ah, don't do it. Okay. I'll tell you, it hurts. It's loud. <laughs> so they're going to be each preaching for us this morning, sermons in seven. The way that this is going to work is that we are going to have... Uh, in just a moment, Miss Larissa Vanderwalt, she's going to preach to us about worship. Evans Dogby is going to preach to us about reading our Bible and the Word of God. And then Steph Kearns is going to preach to us this morning about prayer. So, our first component of the Daily 20 that we're going to learn about is worship. So, North Place, I need you to help me to give a big round of applause and a big hand for our first intern, Miss Larissa Vanderwall. Come on. It's all yours. Well, good morning, everyone. So, how does worship fit into the Daily 20 discipline? I'm sure if all of us go around this room, each of us will have different opinions about how it should look like what it is, all of that. Some of us might say the same things, some of us won't. But the point is, all of us will have an opinion of how worship looks like and what it should be. Perhaps in the style of music, maybe in the place we do it in, maybe the people that we do it with. And actually, Jesus encounters someone in the New Testament that thought the exact same way. She was surrounded by many different people with very strong opinions, and Jesus shows her what worship really is. I love the story of the woman at the well in John 4, and I wish we had time to go deeper into that story because it's one of my favorites, truly. But Jesus encounters her there at the well after sending the disciples away to go get some lunch. And he was very strategic because he knew that she needed to be encountered by herself. He continues to have a conversation with her, and she continues to challenge him about the Jewish beliefs and that of her own faith. His response we find in John 4, 21, 24. It says, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when we will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So from this story, we can pick up that she had so many questions. She was really hungry for the truth. She was rejected. She was bitter. She was alone. Yet we see something in her that was looking for more. Being a Samaritan woman, she knew of God, and she probably practiced some kind of religion growing up. But she found herself now pushed aside by people maybe because of her circumstances and maybe because of events that have happened in her life. But because she's rejected, she believes that she can never do anything right. She'll never be able to be perfect because of the many rules that the Jewish people imposed on her. But Jesus picks her. He has a direct encounter with her and he treats her in a way that she's never been treated before. He was strategic because he knew her heart and her mind. In my own life, I've come to know that worship it's more spontaneous when things are going well, but it's more valuable when things don't go so well. It's in the times when I came to the end of myself, 
where I was so aware of my dependence on God that worship became the strongest part that I could hold on to. Worship is what changed everything for me. Might be hard to believe for some, but I've only been living in Durban now for the past five years. And when God moved me from Durban to Pretoria, waar die persjakkerandes blom elke oktober, elke jaar in oktober, en die blauw bille hulle beste probeer. When God moved me from Pretoria, it was the first time that I was ever living by myself. It was in that small little living room of mine where I really learned what worship is and how God wanted me to do it. It's there where God started breaking down the walls in my heart and he gave me the space and the time to become really, really comfortable in worship. Sometimes that looked like playing music really loud so that no one can hear me sing while I was lifting up my hands in the air. Sometimes that looked like sitting on the floor, just in the quiet space, listening, crying, journaling. And sometimes it was just in that dead quiet where I would speak out scripture. But God knew that the only way to my heart, like the woman at the well, was to encounter me by myself. Now, I'm not saying that we are meant to be in isolation. I'm not saying that God wants us to be alone. But what I am saying is that his love, his grace, his truth, and his pursuit of our hearts and our minds is that personal. He is that close to us. Worship is very personal and it's intimate. I'm telling you all of this to show you that worship is intentional. Worship is a choice. But it is so natural because we are created to worship God. We are created to worship the one true and living God. Have you ever noticed that when we come out of a time of worship, then... It's almost like um, you had strawberries and cream. You just you feel like you're unfinished and you can't stop just yet. And worship is more than my wish, my weekly attendance on a Sunday morning. It's more than being able to sing and play instruments here on stage. And we dance and we sing because David modeled that to us in most of the songs. But it is so much more than that. Rather, posture, it's a posture that you place your heart in first of all. Worship is a placement of yourself in the right position before an all-knowing, all-powerful, immutable, eternal God who chose to create each one of us. But more than that, he loves us to death and redemption. So no matter the situation, good or bad, because of who God is, we can boldly and confidently say what Psalms 115.1 says to us. Not to us, Lord, but not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. So maybe worship isn't so much about when or where or how, but it is about who. My prayer for us is that we would respond daily like that psalmist says, not to us, Lord, but to your name. And like that woman at the well who points to Jesus after she has this major life-changing encounter, out of the overflow of her spirit, she says to people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. And I wonder, what would our worship look like tomorrow morning? when we wake up on a Monday morning? What would our worship look like by the end of this week when we realize it's weekend? What would our worship look like when we are driving to the doctor on Wednesday? What would my worship look like when I go home to an empty and a quiet house today? What would my worship look like when I'm unhappy at work every day? Or what would my worship look like when I realize a dream has come true finally? Something that I've been waiting on for so long. And I hope and I pray that our response will be in spirit and in truth, like Jesus says. Because the Holy Spirit enables us to worship God. The Holy Spirit enables us to do that. And I hope our response of worship would not be determined by when or where or how, but by who. What a privilege it is that we get to worship God. We get to worship the one true and living God and place ourselves with, the, with, with him daily as we spend it in the daily 20. And worship is something that, that sets us free. When we, get, when we do that, we get to be set free from circumstances. Like that woman at the well, she was trapped by circumstances, she was trapped by events, but she was set free because of Jesus, because of the encounters that she had with Jesus. And I hope and I pray that that would be our response as well. To know and to remember that worship sets us free. You're stalling. Yes, yes, yes. One more time. Can we give it up for Miss Larissa? Yeah.
think she was wanting the air horn, but she had five seconds to spare. So I was going to give it, you had five seconds. I was going to let you keep going. So good, so good. So many good words there of understanding what worship truly is. Amen? Amen. Our next intern, he has been a wonderful gift to us uh, for over, well, for two years and really longer than that, uh, and a beautiful testimony of how he came to North Place uh, as well. Um, and so I just encourage you, never underestimate the power of your influence and where you are and where God places you. So our next intern is going to come this morning and he's going to speak to us about reading the Bible, the word of God. So would you help me welcome Mr. Evans Dogby. <laughs> Good morning, North Place. Oh, come on, guys. Good morning. Morning. Wow, I don't know about you, but I am very, very excited to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share with you this morning. And I'm going to talk about reading your Bible. I just want to start by asking, well, what is really the Bible? Well, the Bible is simply, for me, it's an instructional manual of life. And the author of it is God. Should we care about that? Well, I'm in 2022. I don't know about care. I just want my freedom. In 2022, listen. We love our freedom so much. This is how much we love our freedom. We don't even want biology to be telling us how we are supposed to express our sexuality. That is 2022 for you. We love freedom. Now, God is not against your freedom. He just wants you to be responsible for the consequences that comes along with that freedom. That's all he's saying. Now, how can we really unpack this? Let's look at the example of cooking. Well, I'm not a great cook. Let's just say that. <laughs> Of the bad. Some of you are looking at me like, what is he talking about? Okay, well, 2022, how are we going to cook? Well, we are very diverse. We are very inclusive. So perhaps we will start with the coffee on one side. We pour salt, tomatoes, garlic. We have some curry on one corner. Perhaps pizza on my left and maybe a milkshake right down the center. Now, if I try to eat something like that, maybe I may find myself a little bit confined to a very special area in my room. I don't know about you. The surrounder to an authority is the true manifestation of freedom. What do I mean by that? Well, for me to enjoy that meal, I will first have to submit myself to an authority in that space. In that example, that will be the recipe. And what is a recipe really? A recipe is just a bunch of questions, or sorry, a bunch of instructions that is talking to me about, well, add eggs. After two minutes, if it is not blue, but green, add Y. That's all he's saying. So at face value, it doesn't really have meaning. But if I look at the recipe from the context of the fruits, I begin to see its unique ability to transform the ingredients into something that I can now enjoy. Now I have perspective. So, in other words, guys, how would you like to have the recipe of life? Because when we talk about reading the Bible, that is really what the Bible allows you to have. Maybe you are sitting here and you are like, look, okay, oh, that's all well and good. I have no issues with authority. After all, we have leaders everywhere. Maybe I just have a problem trusting leaders. Maybe I just don't trust God. That's a fair question to have. I don't trust God. Why should you? After all, bad things also happen to good people. Hello? Why should I trust God? Well, let me ask you this question. Before you existed, what did you do to earn your life? And if you're an American, you perhaps will say, what did you do to earn your life? What did you do to deserve the life that you, you have right now? Think about it. Before you, wait, I have to exist to do something. So before you existed, you did absolutely nothing. To have the one thing that you value most, which is your very life. It was given to you freely by a God that loves you. Now, how can I say that I will accept the life, but not the manner that comes with it? That is synonymous to saying, hey, I really love the manufacturer of the product. I just don't trust his manual. That makes no sense. So perhaps, maybe for you, it's not that you don't trust God. Maybe you simply don't know who God is. And your question is, how do I know this God? Well, it starts by reading about him. You're not just going to happen to know him. You have to seek him out. I personally think it's going to take all of your life to get to know God. Forget what I think. Let me tell you what Jesus Christ, in his greatest hour of need, his deepest desire for you and I. He says in John chapter 17, verse 3, and I read, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, his deepest desire is for you to know your father. You know who else agrees with Christ? Paul. He says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 8, and I read, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Now, what is he talking about? My life is absolutely meaningless. There is no point to it if I have no Christ in it. What is he talking about? Well, my life will simply be some monotonous clock. That starts ticking from me waking up in the morning, eating, drinking, sleeping, and doing it just all over again the next day. There will be simply no purpose to it. It is in seeking God. When you begin to seek God, something about you changes. When you begin to read about God, you discover that you begin to love him. The more you love him, the more you are going to desire to be like him. And the more that desire, the more of him you become. In other words, the Bible is not about information of God only. It's also the source of your transformation. Now, how do we really unpack this? Think about it, folks. Seriously, think about it. When you seek to read the Bible, something interesting happens. You are reading the Bible, but it is also reading you. You begin to find yourself in it. You begin to find different versions of yourself in it. And you see how it starts and how it ends. In other words, now you can see the ending from the beginning, which means you have revelation. What am I talking about? Reading your Bible starts with information about God that brings you into transformation through revelation. Guys, maybe you might be sitting here and you're wondering, hey, okay, well, that's well and good. How do I know, though? How do I know it's God that is not, how do I know it's not my own voice? In my head, how do I think, like, I don't even know, how do, I, how do I separate my thoughts from God? Maybe that might be your problem. And that's a great question. Here's the thing. If you read your Bible, then you will know that his thoughts are as far from you as the east is from the west. The very fact that I have to ask that question, that should be all the motivation I need to change. That question should not end in confusion. It should trigger a change. So here in North Place, we absolutely believe in reading your Bible. It will be the greatest robbery of your life to live all of it without never knowing your father. You just have to spend five minutes. That's all we ask. How may you do this? You can go on our app, go to the Bible section, get the plans, and go through it. Get to know your father. Get to know him. Seek him out. Pay close attention to people who have lived just like you and I in history. Look at their tendencies and ask yourself this question. What is God saying to me today? And what am I going to do about it? The value is in the application. Be intentional about your reading. Thank you. Good job, buddy. Good job. So good. Man. <laughs> he saw me bend down. That's why I wrapped it up. <laughs> it's kind of like the dad that's like, I don't want to do it. Don't make me do it. No. <laughs> kidding, kidding. Great job, Evans. Man, the Bible, it's not just a bunch of information. It's information that brings transformation through revelation. My man. That's good. Good stuff. Mm. Well, lastly today, uh, we have um, one more intern that is going to come, and she is going to preach to us this morning. And she is going to talk to us about prayer. And I'm so excited to hear uh, what she has to say about prayer this morning. So would you help me welcome Miss Stephanie Kearns. Love you. Okay, thank you very much, Aaron. All right, I'm going to jump right in because I don't have much time. Today, I'm teaching on prayer, and prayer is specifically for you, for God to get to know you, and you to get to know God. It is personal, it is relational, and it is simple. So, to show you this, we're going to look at the most well-known prayer, the Lord's Prayer. One I know you have all recited, 
at assemblies, special occasions, and events. But the question is asked, if we've all recited this a million times, and this prayer came out of the lips of Jesus, why is there no transformation? Are we doing something wrong? Is this supposed to be a religious repetition or a personal prayer guide? I vote the latter. Not without reason, though, because in Matthew 6, verses 5 to 8, Jesus says about praying in secret, just him and the Father, a personal time. He also says not to heap up empty phrases. And if we are repeating without intention or transformation, it is exactly that. But the pinnacle of the answer was found in Luke 11, verses 1, where the disciples asked Jesus, teach us. And Jesus, personally, out of his relationship with God, taught the following. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a personal prayer guide to lead us into alignment and relationship with God. So let's look at it bit by bit. Our Father in heaven. Firstly, God wanted to assert that God is a father and he is there. A father in Jewish tr tradition is someone who is loving and trustworthy. Someone children can rely on, just as you can. So assert him as your father. Secondly, he is in heaven. Heaven is the spiritual realm where he is enthroned. It is also translated as air. So God is in the air. He is inside, outside, and all around you. Hallowed be your name. If we translate hallowed into the 21st century, it means holy, set apart. God is unique. There is none like him. So think of him like that. Think of what God has done in your life, how he has moved in your life, and call him by name. And as we enthrone him, we dethrone ourselves and invite him to reign in our lives. Your kingdom come is an invitation for him to come and change the world. So what in your world needs to be changed? Job loss, heartbreak, disease? Lay those things at his feet. Bring them before him. And as we surrender it to him, we allow his will to take precedence. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You've surrendered it to his will, but what is his will? And how do we pray our things into his will? You've just asked heaven to come. So imagine that it is already here. What would your things look like? And pray in alignment with that. This prayer has been in aligning yourself and your relationships and the world with God and his blueprint. And heaven is already functioning and happening. And our sincere prayer brings heaven down and partners us with God in bringing heaven to earth. But partnering with God is a daunting thing. As mere mortals partnering with God to see all humanity and creation whole and restored. Does anyone else find that a little bit overwhelming? But we have a portion from the hand of God. Give us this day our daily bread. God is a father we can trust and trust for sustenance. He hand fed the Israelites manna in the wilderness, his chosen children, who is now you and me. And I don't know if we all live in the same South Africa, but it's a little bit wild out there. So God gives us a daily portion, but we have to ask for it and we have to take it and we have to eat of it. And when we do, we're able to partner with him in restoration, beginning with our own restoration to him and forgive us our debts. Debt is anciently understood as sin and sin separates us from God. So what in your life separates you? What brings feelings of shame and guilt? Think on those things and think, how can God change it? Think on how you can bring it to God. And remember that it's just the two of you, but he wants you to let it go and give it to him. And once we've illuminated ourselves, we can look to others as we also have forgiven our debtors. If someone is in debt to you, in your eyes, they've done something to rupture the relationship. But we've asked for God's will, and he calls us to live in peace with everyone. So how can we do that? How can we love everyone? We have to look to their humanity, just as Jesus did and still died. 
Jesus understood deeply how people can fall and mess up, and so must we. We must also look with his eyes. And lastly, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Temptation is anything that draws our attention from the things we've just prayed for. Look at how the enemy tempted Jesus in the wilderness and specifically ask him to lead you to him and away from your personal temptations and away from evil. Prayer is simple, prayer is personal, and prayer is relational. But it is not a tool to be used. It is a weapon to be wielded. And just like an archaic sword, it might take a little bit of practice until you're able to pick it up, a little bit more practice until you're able to swing it around, and a whole lot more practice until you're an expert swordsman. But in that process, you have a coach and a step-by-step guide. And I'll be praying for you as you live out your daily 20. Thank you. Shop step. Come on, North Place. Let's give it up for all three. Yeah. Lastly, uh, this morning, church, we're going to look at listening. So we've just heard, and in our daily 20, we go through worship, and Larissa did it so well and spoke on worship so well, and I love what she said, that uh, worship isn't, it's spontaneous when things are well, but it's more valuable when things aren't going well. Did you catch that? It's not worried about the when, the where, or the how, but it's focused on who. Who do we worship? We worship Christ. Evans talked to us about the word of God and how it is not just information, but it's information that will transform our lives through revelation. So we spend time in God's word and then we pray. We, we, in prayer, I love, Steph, what you said. It, it's simple, it's relational, and it's personal. You know, you, you sometimes think it's, uh, when I grew up, it was in King James language. You could only pray in thou's and these and goeth's and lest's. I'm like, lest? I haven't used that in a sentence ever. I don't even... <laughs> God, less you do it. Like what? <laughs> Prayer, it's simple. And I love, you said it in, early on in your message. You said that it, it, it dethrones us and it enthrones him. Whew. Prayer enthrones God in my life. And then once we've done that in the daily 20, then we sit silently, listening for five whole minutes. Now, (laughs) for those of us that like to talk, (laughs) all the people that like to talk are like, yeah, that's tough. How do you sit for five whole minutes in silence listening? I mean, Think about, have you ever had a conversation with someone or a conversation and really all you could get in was a, hmm, yeah, okay, wow, little nod of the head every once in a while. I've learned to, to do some of those things. If you like to talk, it can be hard to sit in silence. And then for others of us, maybe we can we could sit silently without words coming out of our mouth. Maybe you prefer that. You're like, I could sit quiet. I could sit in silence. Whether you are a talker or not, there's one thing that we all have in common when it comes to silence, and it's the struggle to silence our mind. When we sit down with God and we're spending time with him, have I silenced my thoughts about the mounting to-do list of the day? Have I silenced my thoughts about what I need to get done the next day? Or have I silenced my wondering thoughts of worry? (laughs) Worry about bills and school fees and health issues and and relationship issues, work things, good things, etc. King David gives us some insight that I want to read to you this morning. And he gives us some insight about silence. And you may be surprised to see that it goes beyond merely not speaking. This is what King David says in Psalm 131. It's only three verses in the entire chapter. We're going to look at the first two. He says, my heart is not proud, King David, leader of the nation. (laughs) 
My heart is not proud. Lord, my eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. David teaches us something here that goes far beyond just not speaking. David's teaching us the practice of silence will relinquish control and receive contentment. See, our human nature is to remain in control. If we're honest, and and we talked about this a few weeks back, I think when I preached, when we talked about Jacob and Esau and and how our human nature wants to remain in control. If you're anything like me, it's so easy in life to look at people and circumstances and we can create uh, and make those things objects that fit into our world and our agenda. We can look at people around us, everyone and everything becomes an object so that we can grasp it and control it and manipulate it or them so that it fits into our desires and our needs. Maybe it's just me. This is why silence is so important in our spiritual disciplines. Because you see, without the practice of silence, our spiritual disciplines become objects that we employ to produce our own transformation. Did you hear that? Without the practice of silence, our spiritual disciplines will even become objects in our life where we attempt to produce our own transformation. Or even worse, it's an attempt to manipulate God to bring about the changes that I have decided I need. If I only spend time praying and giving God my list of prayer requests, then I'm saying, God, here it is. I'm going to make sure you know what I want because it's all about me. We have to spend time in silence, and silence is such a hard practice. Why is it so hard? Because I I think it's because when, when we're silent, before our creator especially, what we're saying is, God, I don't know everything. I don't know the answer for this. God, I don't know where I need to change and where I need to be shaped, but you know. Can I tell you today, God knows it all. He sees the beginning from the end. Did you know that? He is not bound by time. God is transcendent of our time. Before time existed, God was there. And so he sees the beginning. He sees you right now. He sees your tomorrow. He sees your grandchildren's tomorrow. And he knows everything that there is to know about you and your future. And so if he knows that and if I believe that, then I can sit in silence. David said, I have calmed and quieted myself. He's saying, I have given up control. I've quieted myself, and I'm like a weaned child with its mother. I am content. I, I love that metaphor because I have three children. So I've seen this process, okay? How many of you know that when a child, a baby, a toddler goes from milk to solid food, it is not Whoop, we're done. So easy, right? It is a process. It is a painful process. It takes some adjusting. There is some fighting that goes on. (laughs) There is some relinquishing of control that happens and that the child must endure. But the parent knows that the baby can't stay on milk forever. We just can't. The baby needs solid food, that it is time to grow and it is time to mature. If the baby or if the child uh, uh, stays on milk for its entire life, it's going to be malnourished and it's going to have health problems and all of these things. And it would also just be a little weird. Can you imagine going in the office, just going to have some lunch, (laughs) right? (laughs) Be slightly weird. (laughs) <laughs> and when that baby is going from eating from going from milk to solid food, how many of you know it is messy? 
Man, we had a, a Facebook memory that popped up just the other day of one of our children, I won't say who, and, and, and it was hilarious because she, well, I just told you, she was sitting in the high chair, and, and, and she was eating her food, and it's hilarious because, and all kids are like this, it's like when they're going from milk to solid food, they're sitting there trying to eat, and it's like they don't control their hands, like it's just like they grab it, and it's just like, <laughs> and whatever goes in the, the mouth, you're like, all right, I guess you got enough, I don't really know, you know. It's okay. It's a mess. That process takes place and it happens. And, and at times it's the, the, the baby, the toddler, they fight that process. And when I was reading about this, David, and especially in his culture in Eastern times, kids wouldn't even start uh, weaning from their mother until three years old. They got teeth. <laughs> They're talking at that point. Like, yeah, I think I just want milk. <laughs> you know, like. Man, that's how they did it back then. <laughs> Sorry. It's a process, and it's painful, and it takes some adjusting, and it can be a messy process. But here's, here's a beautiful thing, and this is why David uses this metaphor. Each of my children, I can remember, they would, they would eat that food. They would have a mess. We'd clean them up, and you know what they would do? They would go back, and they would lay with mama right there in the place of contentment right there in the place where they were safe, where they were secure at one point in time. And mama doesn't reject them. Mama says, yep, I'm still here. And it's beautiful because this is one of the few times in scriptures that we see God referenced almost like a mother. David says, I have learned to be content, just like a baby who went through the process of no more milk. Now you got to eat food. And even though I might not understand why I don't have that control anymore, even though I might not understand why this is happening, I can trust that mama knows best. I can trust in my life that God knows best. David is showing us something here. He's showing us that pushing through this struggle is necessary. And then ultimately, he shows us finding contentment. He uses the metaphor of the uh, finding contentment in the arms of the mother. Likewise, David found contentment. But you got to read the rest of the chapter to know where. It's in verse 3. I love it. We've sang about it this morning. I, uh, Psalm chapter 131, verse 3. Very next verse. Here's what he says. Israel... Put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. David says, let me tell you where I have found contentment. And we've talked about it a lot over the past few weeks. Pastor Randy preached to us about hope. And you should go back and listen to that message, If those messages, if you haven't been able to listen. But David tells us, he says, this is where I have contentment. And Israel, entire nation, this is where you will have contentment. Put your hope in the Lord. And it starts right now. And it lasts forever. You see, when we quiet ourselves before our creator, we can be content. Because even though we may not have everything figured out, we can have hope because our hope is in Christ. Hope has a name and his name is Jesus. So it doesn't matter if there's civil unrest. My hope is in Jesus. It doesn't matter if my political party wins or not. My hope is in Jesus. It does not matter if the economy turns around and everything looks up and the stock market rises because my hope is in Jesus. My hope is in the Lord. Those things are hard, just like the baby going from solid food. It's hard. It's a process. It's a struggle. It's a fight. You may have fears. You may have worries. It's okay. Ultimately, my hope is in Christ. God is wanting us to give up that control in our life, even in our relationship with him. So what does God do? He, he takes the ingredients of worship and Bible reading and prayer, and he speaks transformation. If we will just listen. If we'll just listen. Why is it so hard to listen? I think it's this reason. Pastor Dylan pointed this out to me this week. Listening isn't about what we know, but what we don't know. 
about what I don't know. I think that's why sometimes we try to control conversations and we talk so much because none of us like to seem like we don't know what we're talking about, right? To listen says, you have more information than me. You know more than me and I want to learn from you. So I'm going to listen and then I'm going to ask questions to you. I love Pastor Randy for many reasons, but one of them is that dude's a listener. (laughs) He listens and he asks questions and he asks hard questions and I'm like, man, why'd you ask me that question? Listening isn't about what we know, it's about what we don't know. Listening admits, I don't know it all. There's still room for me to grow. Just as the child is going from milk to solid food, and and that isn't necessarily easy, this transformation process isn't always easy either. But it will bring needed growth in our lives. The daily 20 and every aspect we've talked about today, it brings growth in our lives. I struggled with sharing a personal example with you guys, but I think I'm going to this morning just because I want you to know that none of us have arrived. So sometimes your daily 20 can look like this. You spend time with the Lord in the morning and you worship. You put on your playlist on Spotify and the song that comes up is, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. He chases me down. He fights till I'm found. He leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. But still, you give yourself away. Then we get into the reading and you read Romans chapter 8 about how nothing will ever separate you from his love. Height, depth, uh, time itself, famine, nothing is ever going to separate me from his love. Then you spend some time praying and, and, and the prayer is simply bringing my list to God, my plans for my future. Then in silence... I like to do it early in the morning when everyone's still asleep and when the birds are just waking up. That's my favorite. He speaks very softly and he says, my son, how much applause will it take? How many people will you need to lead? How many times will your suggestion in the meeting need to be accepted? How often will you need to be right? It will never be enough. I have already validated you. I've already seen you. I've already heard you. I, your father, applaud you. And I love you. You see, all of us have issues from our past, no matter who we are. And I never am going to minimize your daddy issues or mommy issues because we all have them no matter who we are we have past hurts and pains and troubles and it's okay we're all of us are imperfect human beings but can i tell you that god when he spoke to me that day and and it's not like that happens every day this was like a okay god i'm writing this one down but when he speaks to us when we when we take time to sit silently and we listen to him he will take the Bible reading and the worship and the prayer time and say, okay, here's what you think you need, but I'm going to give you what you actually need. I'm going to validate you and tell you I love you no matter what, my son. Real quickly this morning, I'm going to give you some practical tips on quieting yourself and listening. Number one, five things. Number one, God speaks to us first and foremost through his word. God speaks to you first and foremost through the Bible, and he speaks to you through the Bible interpreted correctly. That's so very, very, very important. So very important. Number two, eliminate distractions. (laughs) I have to put my phone up. I have to find a time and a space where it's just me and the Lord. So eliminate those distractions. Number three, you say God's voice. I don't know what that sounds like. Here's the thing. God will often speak, speak to you as a still, small thought, oftentimes. And it's rooted in the worship, the Bible reading, and the prayer time that you just had. And it'll pop in, and you're like, okay, that's not me. <laughs> There's no way. I didn't think of that. 
last thing, and this is very, very important, journal it, write it down. If you have to, write out your prayers to God, date those things so you can go back and look at it later on. The invitation is there. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 says this. You've probably heard this verse before, especially if you've been in church for any amount of time. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 says, Behold, some translations say, listen. (laughs) Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If any man or woman hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will sup with him. I like that word. And he with me. I went old school on you and pulled out the King James Version just because, honestly, I like it better. I will sup with him. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, this is the word of Jesus to the church. This isn't unsaved people. This is the word of Jesus to the church in an area, in a region of the world called Laodicea in that time, in the first century. And so to the church at Laodicea, Jesus says, I am standing at the door of your heart and I am knocking. I've heard that for good altar calls for salvation, but it's not to unsaved people. He's talking to the church. He's saying, hey, church, will you let me in? Because I'm standing outside and I'm knocking. Imagine Followers of Jesus. He's not saying I'm knocking at the door of your church building. He's saying I'm knocking at the door of your heart. He's saying I just want to spend time with you because I want to speak to you and transform you into something that you can't even understand fully. I stand at the door and I knock. And he says I will come into him. Look at this. And I will sup with him. That word is where we get the word supper from. Where I grew up, you had three meals. You had breakfasts, you had lunch, like midday, and then you had supper. Now I think we call it lunch and dinner. Like, let's have dinner. I'm like, let's have supper. You know, like, supper was the last meal of the day. I always wanted a family to be able to sit with and have supper. It was usually just me and my mom. It was me and my mom. But we would sit, we'd talk about our day, talk about life. Now we've adopted that as a family ourselves and we have some very strict rules around supper, dinner time. No phones, put them away. We spend time together. We talk about our day. It's an intimate time of connection with one another. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, church, hey, person who believes in me for salvation, I just want to have supper with you. I just want to spend time with you. I just want to speak to you. I just want to have an intimate conversation 